The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I would like to encourage all of you to come Thursday night and hear Ruth King. <clears throat> I don't know her personally, but she's a spirit rock teacher and um, a woman of color. And she's written a book called Mindfulness of Race. And so I think it should be a very, a very interesting, very good talk. I'm planning to come up. So, good morning and welcome, everybody. Uh, I came with the idea of <clears throat> giving you a choice <laughs> of what you'd like to hear today. And I think while I was sitting here, I made the decision. But, <laughs> but let me just offer. Um, <clears throat> I could talk about mudita, or I could share with you a call to conscience, which is an article that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote recently um, or earlier this year, encouraging us as Buddhists to essentially get off our seats <laughs> and stand up for what is morally, ethically important. Do you have a preference? I forgot what mudita is. Mudita is sympathetic, empathetic joy. The third. Shall we go with that? (laughs) That's your vote. Anybody else have a vote? Yeah? Yeah? Oh, well, I'll tell you what, we can do that, and if you want to hear the talk on Mudita, go to Audio Dharma for last Thursday night, (laughs) and you'll hear it. Um, So, I think what I'm going to do is mostly read this. I I started out, I shared it with my group in Morgan Hill last night, and I, I started out thinking I would make notes and then speak from that, and decided that hearing it in Bhikkhu Bodhi's word, own words was probably most effective. So do all of you know who Bhikkhu Bodhi is? <laughs> no. Bhikkhu Bodhi is um, a Theravada monk, most known for doing the translations of the suttas. And uh, he, he's been here a couple times, not for a couple years, I guess, but a lovely man. He lived in Sri Lanka for 30 years, I think, in practice. And uh, now he lives in upstate New York at a Chinese Buddhist temple or monastery. Um, He is the one that started Buddhist Global Relief, BGR, which uh, he said when he started it, which must have been, mm, I don't know, between five and ten years ago, that he looked around and he saw Christian 
Jewish and Islamic Muslim charitable organizations that were, you know, doing service in the world, and he didn't see a Buddhist one. There is one, Suchi, um, which does wonderful, wonderful work. But he decided that that was missing and that was important. So he started Buddhist Global Relief. And uh, their biggest fundraiser every fall, they do walks, walks to feed the hungry. And uh, it's a way to promote interest and, and get donations. And they do raise quite a bit of money. They do work here in the States as well as overseas, more overseas. But the idea is to alleviate poverty or alleviate food insufficiency. And they do that not just by donating money or food, but by helping farmers to farm sustainably and, and helping, um, <clears throat> helping countries in whatever way they need to be able to provide for their own people. And here they work in um, some very rural, very um, poor areas in the Appalachians and I'm not sure where else. So Bhikkhu Bodhi is a very loving very caring man, and he's having sort of the same reaction now. Theravada monk Bhikkhu Bodhi calls for the emergence of a collective Buddhist voice of conscience. There is a widespread attitude among Buddhists especially Western Buddhists, that politics is an arena to be avoided, as if it were a toxic pit. It's seen as a detour from our spiritual quest, a distraction and an entanglement, a falling away from our aspirations for purity, enlightenment, awakening, and liberation. But in the face of today's multiple crises, we can't turn away. Yes, politics is often corrupt, dirty, and divisive. Elections and contests over policies are often driven by the craving for power or by the desire of egocentric personalities to shine in the spotlight. But politics is also the field where the great moral issues of our time are being debated and decided. The shame of systemic racism, the treatment of immigrants, climate disruption, health care, war and militarism, All these crises come together in their deep, compelling, moral dimensions on the stage of national politics. 
for this reason. If we are to fulfill our ethical responsibilities, it's not enough simply to adopt the Buddhist precepts as guides to personal conduct, live a life of moral integrity, and cultivate thoughts of loving kindness and compassion in the comfort of our meditation halls. It's crucial for us to enter the sphere of action. This does not necessarily mean that we should endorse candidates, follow them on the campaign trail, or join political parties. But moved by the principles of loving kindness and compassion, by our commitment to justice and equity, we must come forward and oppose oppressive institutions and systems and challenge harmful laws and policies. In their place, we must strive to create a social order rooted in a moral vision, an order that embodies love and compassion and provides opportunities for everyone to flourish. After the election of Donald Trump, the Buddhist chaplain at Duke University asked whether I thought it was time for Buddhists to form a progressive coalition to advocate on public affairs from a Buddhist point of view. I told her that such a coalition was now a crying need. Around the same time, Reverend William Barber, the co-director of the Poor People's Campaign, gathered signatures from 2,500 clergy for a letter petitioning Congress about the cabinet appointees. William Barber, you may have seen on television, he's a very large African-American man, very active in, um, well, in the Poor People's Campaign. There were plenty of Christian, Jewish, and Muslim signatures. But I could find only one Buddhist on the list. It seemed that in such a critical situation, Buddhists were missing in action. So sort of the same thing as with Buddhist global relief. And this was the... um, the the petition of uh, from clergy petitioning Congress about the cabinet appointees. Soon thereafter, Sumi and I spoke to a few other Buddhist activists and held several discussions about forming a national Buddhist public affairs alliance. But we found it wasn't easy to mobilize people on the national level. Therefore we decided that the best way to start a Buddhist social action network was to operate on the local level first. We hoped that if we could create a few local groups around the country, they would eventually connect to form a national coalition. Today's meeting at Union Theological Seminary marks the starting point for an effort that we hope will bear fruit in the future. I think it's crucial that as Buddhists, 
we look at public affairs from the perspective of a Buddhist conscience. I use the word conscience to mean the use of one's moral ideals, one's commanding moral commitments, as a lens through which to examine the daunting political, social, and economic problems that we face as a society and a nation. And I would add there that um, I don't think that the Buddhist conscience (laughs) is so different from the Christian or Jewish or Islamic conscience. Um, You know, when we look deeply at other traditions, the precepts, or sometimes they're called commandments, are very, very similar. And, and the ideals of protecting people, taking care of each other, of compassion, of loving kindness, etc., aren't so, so different. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily um, the Buddhist conscience that he's calling forth, except that he's seeing that Buddhists in the West are not so active. We begin with a critical assessment of our challenges, examining their underlying webs of causation, and then formulate an alternative vision of the way things should be of how systems and policies should be transformed to correspond to our deepest, most heartfelt moral convictions. And I would just change that should be to could be. With such a vision in mind, we can act to translate our convictions into realities. It's in the political field that this transformation must take place. It is here that decisions are made about who will get health care and who will be dropped, who will receive basic social services and who will be left to fend for themselves, about who will live and who will die. It's here that budgets are drawn up that either direct funds to schools or invest more in new weapon systems. It's here that we determine whether to make the transition to clean energy or continue burning fossil fuels. These issues mark a critical intersection of the moral and the political, and to push them aside is, in my view, to renege on our moral responsibilities as followers of the Buddhist path of limitless compassion. The word I see as best defining our present need is solidarity. Solidarity means a deep identification with those who face persecution, oppression, and marginalization, who daily struggle against the diminishment or denial of their humanity. We see such tendencies here in the U.S. in the criminal justice system, with its police violence, frantic shootings, and mass incarceration incarceration of black people, in the rounding up and deportation of immigrants, 
to the detriment of their families. In heartless laws that force people into homelessness and hunger. In tax policies that may well result in some 13 million people losing their access even to minimal health care. This marginalization and dehumanization of people is occurring not only on our own soil, but also all around the world. Even though we focus on local and national issues, we also have to understand the global ramifications of U.S. policy. And I want to underscore that. The global ramifications of U.S. policy. Runaway militarism goes back decades to previous administrations representing both political parties. Our policies, though packaged in the wrappings of good intentions, though stamped with praise to freedom and justice for all, have too often brought death and misery to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And we all know that, right? To give an example, a few days ago I read an article in the online news publication The Intercept about a U.S. drone attack on a group of Afghan farmers who had gone to the nearby town to purchase groceries. They were on their way back to their home in a hired van. The attack killed 14 people. Just one little girl, four years old, survived. In the attack, she lost her parents, her younger brother, and other relatives, and now has to face the rest of her life without her immediate family. Imagine how we would feel if something like that happened to us or to our own families. But because it happened somewhere far away from us to nameless brown people on the other side of the world, we hardly hear of it in our newspapers or on the mainstream media. Did anybody hear about it? I vaguely remember hearing something, but I'm not sure. However, events of this sort should stir our conscience and move us to act together to change our policies locally, nationally, and globally. We must strive to create a world based on the realization that every human being has inherent dignity. We must pursue a policy agenda that recognizes that all people have the right to live safely, to meet their basic physical needs, to fulfill their potential, and to pursue the goals that give their lives value. Today's meeting might be considered the starting point for the emergence of a collective Buddhist voice of conscience a conscientious compassion by which our innermost conscience responds to the vast suffering of the world. In the weeks and months ahead, we must continue the work that started here today. As Buddhists, we have much to offer. We must contribute our clear insights, special contemplative tools, and compelling moral convictions in the task of transforming 
and uplifting our society and the world. We must join hearts and minds with each other, with those of other faiths and with those of a secular orientation, to bring forth the kind of world that corresponds to our deepest moral aspirations. So, thoughts or reactions? I have a question uh, about what you think of his use of the idea of contemplative tools in this process. I mean, obviously, uh, most of the things he's talking about have to do with the actions in conventional reality, which is much needed. But um, I'm wondering what you think about the efforts of um, Buddhists around the world for centuries to alter the mind stream or conventional reality through um, the act of meditation and contemplative practice? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good question. I, <clears throat> for me, our meditation practice is the foundation. And it's from that that we can be active in the world, but <laughs> in a very different way. When we come from um, a place of mindfulness, of quietness, of stillness, we bring a totally different energy to whatever we are doing. So I'm reminded of a few years ago, um, when was it? I can't remember now. There was a big demonstration and march in San Francisco. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it was as far back as the 90s, but, but anyway. Protesting... Uh, Oh, maybe it was after 9-11. Anyway, uh, there was a very large Buddhist presence. We met and congregated at City Hall in San Francisco, and there was a very large area where Buddhist practitioners, uh, it was actually formed or held by... Um, uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And people were sitting quietly on cushions or on the grass, on the cement, whatever. And there were speeches that were being given. And of course, you know, the political idea in a rally like that is to work everybody up. And so the speeches were kind of rah-rah, you know, yeah. And, I mean, not, not bad, but just that kind of arousing energy. And here was this large group of Buddhists sitting very quietly. 
and it was very noticeable. And then after the speeches, there was the march. And um, <clears throat> Blanche Hartman from San Francisco Zen Center was alive at the time and was leading the, the Buddhist part of the march. And for a long time, we just walked in silence. Eventually, of course, people began to talk. But we just walked in silence. And it was very noticeable. And it was very important. We were a very strong Buddhist presence, but in a very quiet way. And sometimes, especially amidst a lot of fur, um, that quietness is palpable. <laughs> it's noticeable. One time, also many years ago, I was with a group of people from Buddhist Peace Fellowship at San Quentin when there was to be, it may have been the last um, execution at San Quentin. And it was the same thing. There were many, of course, many people there, but the Buddhist contingent was just quiet. We stood together, I think some sat, and we were just quiet witnesses and it's noticed, you know. People notice that. And the value of it is that we're there. We are standing up. <laughs> but in a very different way. In a way that doesn't create enemies, that doesn't create conflict. But in a way that says, you know, we are aware. We are here. We are paying attention. And so for me, that contemplative underpinning, that contemplative um, foundation is really important for us. And I think what Bhikkhu Bodhi is speaking to is, okay, you know, Buddhist meditation practice has come to the West. It's established. It's been here now, what, 50 years or something. And there are Dharma centers all over. There are sitting groups, you know, lots of sitting groups, especially here in the Bay Area. Now it's time to take that to public view, or I was going to say to the street, but not always necessarily to the street, but to bring with that contemplative foundation to bring our our virtue, our moral convictions, our boundless compassion to um, all of life, to the political arena, because as he says, that's where decisions about policies, about who <laughs> who gets this and who doesn't, that's where those decisions are made. Does that answer, Randy? Yes, that answers the question about how things are affected in people's impressions and uh, and possibly their um, mind, their decisions, their mental decisions, and their awareness. Um, I guess my question is about the whether um, you think Bhikkhu Bodhi or you yourself 
think that the um, meditative practices of compassion and uh, loving kindness to the world have a have an effect that is beyond that realm of mental um, awareness of individuals at a at a more ultimate realm. I think it can. Um, <clears throat> and I don't, you may not be saying this, but what came up for me is it's not an either or. Um, we need both. Um, <clears throat> I think it is important, our metta or karuna or mudita practices um, do have an effect. We don't know exactly how that happens. A little bit like in Christianity, prayer has an effect. There are certainly stories about how um, uh, people get the metta that is being practiced for them without any obvious or overt means of their knowing. At the same time, uh, obviously, Bhikkhu Bodhi and, and I also think that, you know, this is where we live, <laughs> in this realm. And it's important to put our practice into practice. <laughs> it's important to... Um, the world needs our our mindfulness-based activism. And it really can be different because of the uh, contemplative foundation. But I think, you know, uh, we cannot really separate this world from ultimate reality. And so our practice can be both, both on the cushion or on the chair, offering compassion and loving kindness to the world, but also in our actions in everyday life. And I would say... um, for me, it's not just being socially active. I try to keep this awareness in every single thing I do, in every single interaction I have, so that I am bringing my compassion, my caring for all of life into every interaction I have during the day. And the contemplative part of the mindfulness part allows me to be aware of what I'm feeling, be aware of my reaction, perhaps, um, and then be able to make a more skillful decision from that place so that I don't just react and do something that I'm going to be sorry for. 
but I'm aware of that reaction. I might sit with it. I might talk to other people, other teachers. And when I have some more equanimity, then I might act. Does that answer more? (laughs) Say more if you want, Randy. Yeah, you want the. Um, lot, lot of conflicting um, thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple is um, and my background is Catholic Christian before I came here, and um, and I do see Buddhism as as different from Muslim Christianity and and Judaism and. Um, in my mind, we have less of an agenda or ulterior motives. I, and um, it's, I, I think a lot of Buddhist people are very active. They're just not under a, quote, Buddhist umbrella. Um, you know, and, and I think of, like, environmental organizations or organizations that aren't, quote, Christian or Jewish or mm-hmm. Islamic. And, um, you know, I, I just see... That was one of the things that attracted me to, to Buddhism. It's the people were active and compassionate, and especially around when, um, when I had to face death. It was like no one else was even talking about this. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, wow, it's, it's, it's really conflicting for me because of what you said. In, in the realm of politics, there are so many really vocal voices and... Um, and divisive voices, and it's almost. I, I like the the image of of the Buddhists for peace, making a stance but not being argumentative and and being inclusive. And it's it's really hard to do that, I think, and and to have a a political voice. So I I don't have any easy answers, but I I also think of. You know the quote Christian umbrella there. Are Factions with a whole different viewpoint than other factions. So right. to me, there's there's sort of a danger of, of the loudest voice being taken to be a quote Buddhist voice. Like I hated the the incidents in, in Miramar, the whole situation and um and the horror of it. But also that a large part of the world might think, oh, this is what Buddhists do. And and to me, it's it's the only time I've heard of quote Buddhists causing any such harm um, and the other thing I, th- I thought about was um, how attitudes towards gay people have, have totally changed in the last 10, 20 years mm-hmm. and when they do um, research into, into the reason for that and what's changed attitudes is most people say it's because they know someone gay and it, it just caused them to rethink and you know, in my mind, that's always—it's always been like a political thing, but a very quiet one, just just to be out and to be a fairly good person. And just that really small, simple individual act mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. changed minds over a major issue over the course of time. Right. But just who knows how many people doing that, and that possibly—I don't know for sure—but and it might take a lot longer in regards to immigration and policies that sometimes. 
those simple acts of, of being vocal, but not in a, a hysterical, demanding, mm-hmm. um, insulting way, mm-hmm. might change minds. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, and that's sort of what I try to do. It, it might be taking an easier way out because the other way of being more loudly political is, is so... Um, God, it's laden with landmines for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Right. right. I don't know. But it, I do think it is important to find ways to take steps. And I, I like the idea of the Buddhist presence and, and visible, but I also see um, conflicts with it that I'm not sure about and hesitant about. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I do think we're more active than his... Um, discourse would have given me reason to believe and there are groups that I've heard of well that's that's good and it might possibly have to do with being in the Bay Area yeah yeah they might not be national and have such a visibility yeah yeah but but I just want to say to your first point I absolutely agree um that the Buddhist perspective offers something that other traditions don't. And I feel the Buddhist voice is very important. And when I was saying that our morality isn't so different from others, I'm, I'm talking about, um, you know, the compassion and the loving kindness and etc. that other faith traditions also espouse. Um, <clears throat> you know, a few years ago, Karen Armstrong, who is a former Buddhist, um, Catholic, Catholic. <laughs> thank you, nun, uh, did sort of a study, uh, she's a scholar, did a study of all of the major world's religions and discovered that compassion was the common denominator. Compassion was a part of all traditions. And she drew up the Charter for Compassion, which is online, and anybody can sign it. So, so that's kind of the idea I was referring to. Um, the way it gets expressed, <laughs> or not expressed, can be very, very different. And I think, for me, the value of the Buddhist perspective is, number one, seeing clearly. It's, you know, so often in politics, people get polarized because it's this way or that way. And in Buddhist understanding, we try to see the whole picture. And we understand that there are multiple causes and conditions for any action. No action results from one cause. There are many, many causes and conditions that go into anything happening. And so hopefully Buddhists bring this larger understanding um, of what's going on. And hopefully we can avoid the, the conflict and the we-they and the uh, hostility that can go on between different people. And also drop the labels. <laughs> The labels may be one of the most harmful things right now. And as you suggest, Buddhists can be very active without 
being known as Buddhists. <laughs> um, but just acting out of our moral principles. So I, for many years, 10, 12 years, have done interfaith panels with a group called Islamic Networks Group. And I said to Gil recently, you know, I'm really getting tired of other religions. (laughs) Just get... I said, but I feel like the Buddhist perspective is so important. I keep doing it. Um, Because it's obvious when I do these panels that what I offer from the Buddhist teachings is a little different. And I think it's so, so valuable, so helpful to the discourse. So I keep doing them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, uh, it's a very complicated issue, obviously, and I am most profoundly grateful to the tradition on so many levels. And, you know, the more people could be part of it, obviously, the better. But what has been a source of frustration, at least for me lately, that I have observed that I feel that we as a Buddhist have certain area of expertise and other... Um, areas have their own body of knowledge and sometimes I feel our going into the areas which we don't know a lot about leads to us being discredited by other people. For example, my brother works in Google. I don't know why Google decided that would be a good idea to you know, have a bunch of engineers listen to this kind of stuff. But what took my brother off, he's like, okay, there was some sort of Rinpoche who was saying to professor in physics that he is not ready to study physics because he does not understand himself yet. You know, like, I don't know what we are trying to accomplish with that. So uh, the same with, um, for example, efforts to um, correct climate change. Obviously, climate change is a globally very important issue that needs awareness. But what I have observed, again, that happens a lot, that Buddhists, because it's not their area of expertise, make statements about climate change that leads them not being taken seriously by people who do have an expertise. And I believe that that is a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I would say that that, uh, realistically speaking, would also apply to politics, because funding... It's, Funding is important. I do believe that we offer unique perspective and it is very valuable. So if we say what's the percentage of uh, U.S. population is Buddhist, like realistically speaking, what amount of funding we can have? Okay, we can sit quietly outside, that's great. But is it going to be translated to any meaningful change? Probably not. So I'm not advocating to not do anything, but I am advocating... uh, trying to be effective in our efforts and trying not to antagonize people who have expertise in the area because at that particular moment we don't have expertise in this area. We might hire somebody who has expertise in Mm -hmm. the area, Mm -hmm. but just making statements like that, I don't think it's helping our host. I think it's turning people away from what we are trying to do. Mm 
Mm. So that's all. I don't know. Yeah, thank you. And I love Buddhism very, very dearly. So this is not a criticism <laughs> yeah. of the tradition. Yeah. It just more comes from my pain and frustration that our efforts to reach out leads to us being discredited, and I wish that would not be the case. So that's all. Hello. Um, so one of the things that I've thought about a lot recently is right speech. And I know when I was younger, I kind of enjoyed getting like all hot and angry <laughs> in <laughs> debates. <laughs> And now, like, I'm embracing trying to be, you know, more calm and more mindful of what I'm saying, and it's easier to maintain that when I don't say anything. But then what you were saying is that if you just stay quiet, then people don't connect to you with whatever you're doing. And so just letting your voice be heard and that that's what you stand for, if more people know that that's where people are coming from, then that in and of itself can be good. But is there a way to engage in that right speech without getting, like, I think we've had some conversations about conflict and the hook. But the thing is, just to stand up and say, hey, I don't agree with that, like, you're already, I feel like I already get emotionally charged by that and and kind of unbalanced. Mm -hmm. So is there Mm -hmm. anything that you can think of that could speak (laughs) to that? Well, this is pretty much where we got to last night. (laughs) Um, How do we speak and and not create conflict or create enemies and I think there's no simple answer um, a lot of it is our intention when we have the intention to not create conflict, but to actually connect with somebody who feels differently than we do, then our whole energy is going to be a little different. And if we truly want to understand them, then then we may ask questions. We may draw them out and let them speak. And it's always... Uh, an individual decision whether to say anything or not in any particular situation. And sometimes the most skillful thing is to say, I disagree. And sometimes the most skillful thing is to sit quietly. And part of it depends on us. Um, As you were saying, sometimes we get... uh, you know, riled up or agitated about something, and maybe that's not the best time to speak. But then, a little bit later, when we've calmed down, that may be the time. And maybe this is a good situation to speak, and this is not. And maybe what people were saying last night is, maybe you don't talk to relatives. (laughs) Maybe you talk to other people you don't know. But I did want to say before I forget that um, I don't remember her name, but there is a Buddhist woman in the Congress right now from Maine, I believe. Yeah. So that may be that may be helpful. Yeah. Just a minute. Did you? So just to pick up on actually both of you, and then what you just said, it linked together. Um, It makes me nervous if. Uh, 
any group is speaking for the whole group, a singular person. Your examples are a singular person representing the totality of a group. It's kind of when you think about forgiveness. Can you forgive someone if it's not something hasn't been done to you to forgive for another group? I think the same is true to in many instances because yours were very specific situations that whatever those people said for that to represent, you know, Buddhism or (laughs) Judaism or whatever it might be. Um, I also think in the article, um, I think many people come to this contemplative practice, me being one, um, from a different religious background and not necessarily wanting another religious background, but liking the underpinnings Mm -hmm. of what this offers Mm -hmm. and that it's accepting of whether you go full heart into the religious aspect or not. Right. So having Buddhist, I would never probably march in a Buddhist grouping because it's called a Buddhist grouping. As I wouldn't, <laughs> my background is Jewish, I probably wouldn't do the same there unless there was a, something specific to those groups that I was trying, that I felt strongly about and wanted to represent, but not in a topic outside of that. Um, I think on the what do you, the quietness, I struggle with the same thing, like trying to not jump in and listen. And so I think listening, um, I have kids that we've been talking about where do you create safe spaces for differing point of, points of view these days. And I have a high schooler and a middle schooler, and they're all struggling with it, as are the adults, mm-hmm. um, because we become so polarized, as you just said. And there doesn't seem to be a capacity to hear or listen without first thinking what I find myself doing it and catching myself. You're talking to me, and I think I'm listening, but I'm already thinking of the argument I'm going to say to you. So I'm really not listening to you. So I think... um, In that article, what I liked is when I hear contemplative practice, it's how do we come to the table in all these discussions? And whether you say it's Buddhism or mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, that we come with a different presence, I think hopefully will make a difference. I think it makes a difference in our individual actions, Mm -hmm. and then as we talk to others and as that goes out into the world. But I think having some safe spaces to, to have these conversations yes. is very helpful. Yes, it is. Thank you. Do you want to pass it over here, this lady, and then Jonathan? Thank you for reading that article. It was really beautiful. I want to read it again, so thank you for mm-hmm. calling my attention mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that I really appreciated over the past several months, and I don't know why I received these petitions, but there were a couple of petitions that I noticed. One was about children being separated from their parents, um, immigrant families, and it was a petition signed by Buddhist teachers from all over the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. And then there, I think there was another petition more recently about the midterm elections. I'm not sure what that second petition was about, but that, that could be incorrect. But I really appreciated receiving those and seeing that Buddhist teachers all over the country 
we're finally um, speaking out about some of these situations. And I'll just say that um, because of my practice, I've been practicing about five years because of my uh, loving-kindness practice and my mindfulness practice, I felt absolutely compelled to volunteer for the midterm elections Mm. to try and change the direction of the country. I mean, I just, yes, we we're working on our inner selves, and then that hopefully benefits, that moves out and benefits others that we encounter throughout our lives. But I also (laughs) think we have to work on the structural situation in this country, which is that, you know, there was no check, there there wasn't a check in place for our current president. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very, actually, I'm really, really, very happy about the results of the midterms, and I think they're going to have tangible results. Can you come Thursday night? I'm coming Thursday night. Good, good, yeah. I'm sure she'll speak about the systemic and the structural problems, yeah. Um, It seems to me that there's one type of Opposition that comes from a deep rootedness and justice, and there's another kind of opposition that just comes from an ego-driven reactivity. And all of us are prone to the latter <laughs> some of the time, no matter how correct our cause is. You can have a good cause, but have it be polluted by some uh, kind of an animalistic anger uh, of some kind. Um, and it seems to me that Sometimes this, a certain type of Buddhist serenity is a prerequisite, I think, to being an effective agent of change, to be being really effective. And I think sometimes when other people have views we don't like, we have to be, see that they may be coming from a place of woundedness <laughs> and, and hurt, uh, just like, um, you know, uh, people who just won't go to a place that reminds them of some previous harm. And I think we have to just look for that. But then at times, being oppositional is just the right thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And I also think the different faith traditions, to me they're like different fruit juices or different (laughs) different flavors of ice cream. You know, they're, they're all fruit juices, but... Pineapple's different from cranberry. You know? <laughs> okay, that's, so that's sort of how I feel about the faith traditions question. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you. And, and just to underscore the importance of listening, I think that that is so important. And you're right, all of us um, at some time when we're listening to somebody, we're really constructing our response. <laughs> And we think we know what they're saying, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're wrong. I think I just want to say that everything that everybody has said, I think, is valuable. This is not an easy, there's no one answer, and it's not an easy um, question, but it's an important one. And it's important that we all think about it. And then act with our best intentions and from that place of hopefully some equanimity and do what seems appropriate, what feels right in the moment. 
and remember that the smallest action can have very broad consequences. Just and and never never think that people aren't watching you. They are. People notice how you are and what you do or don't do. And I know that because people have told me <laughs> things I you know, I just do because that's what I do. And people say, you know, I noticed. I see you. And so that's a reminder that whether we're being skillful or not skillful, people are noticing. And so that can be the motivation to be as mindful and as skillful as we can possibly be. Okay, it's a few minutes after, so probably we should stop. Thank you all for your interest and your attention. And I will stay around if anybody wants to talk more.